are going to be getting started. So happy Friday, everybody. We survived yet another week um, in our all different state stay at home policies. So thank you all for being attentive um, over the last few weeks and joining us. This is our last April virtual coffee break, but because of popular demand and because we've um, seen such great success with our um, industry partners as well as our colleagues within CBC, we will be launching a May series of our virtual coffee break and we'll talk about taxation during a coronavirus environment. We'll talk about um, different retail and land sectors. We have some really great industry um, experts that will be joining us um, in their trade. Um, even appraisals will have conversations. Dan has done a really great job of creating those relationships and maintaining that and working um, with them to make sure that the best knowledge as possible. So before we begin, um, I also want to mention that we will be having our last um, Monday session as extension to the global conference. It is going to be about build out for experienced users. So go on um, cbclearns.com, which is our um, learning platform, Commercial University, or you can access it through Blueprint, and you can find all the details on our training calendar. We will be launching another series on Mondays, the Building Your Business, and we will be kicking off with um, how to how to gain money, um, how to gain income through residential referrals with our very own Tom Hershey and a great group of panelists. Um, so looking forward to that. So without further ado, what I like to do is introduce Shanae, who is on the line with us, who's going to talk about 1031 exchanges in a corona environment. Um, so thank you, Shanae, for joining us. You're outside of San Francisco in the Bay Area. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've heard uh, with regards to 1031 exchange. Sure. So thanks so much for the warm introduction. And I've had one cup of coffee. I don't know if it's kicked in just yet. So now I'm on my water. I don't want to overdo it here. And so in terms of you know, my background, I've been in the real estate industry for about 15 years now, and I've been handling 1031 exchanges exclusively for the past eight years with Old Republic Exchange. And so I manage the uh, Western Division, Pacific Northwest Division for Old Republic Exchange. So I'm going to just do a quick share of my screen here. Can everyone see this on theirs? Yes, we can. Perfect. So as many of you are aware, the timeline for an exchange begins once the taxpayer closes on the property that they're selling. And they have 45 days generally to identify the replacement property that they want to purchase. And then 180 days from closing on their sale to complete the purchase of what they've identified in the first 45 days. Now on April 9th, the IRS issued an extension to the exchange timelines. And so it's notice 2020-23 that essentially states that taxpayers will now have until July 15th to perform all specified time-sensitive actions that are due to be performed on or after April 1st and July 15th. So what this means is that if either your 45-day identification deadline or 180-day exchange deadline falls between April 1st and 15th, or July 15th rather, that date's now going to be extended to July 15th. So those who are really gonna benefit from this are gonna be anyone who closed on the sale of their property between February 16th through May 31st, their timeline to identify is now going to all be extended until July 15th. So anyone who closes after May 31st, so on June 1st or any day thereafter, 
they're now still going to be bound by that 45-day identification period. For any taxpayers who previously closed on the sale of their properties between October 4th of 2019 and January 17th of 2020, their 180-day exchange period has now been extended through July 15th. So it's interesting because I had a number of taxpayers where they were buying new construction and their 180th day is this month. And they're really nervous because all of the construction has essentially you know, been halted in some form or fashion. So they're really getting a huge benefit from this extension to close till July 15th. And so I have a couple different examples here um, for the extensions and how they would apply. So again, if your 45-day identification period expired on April 20th, with this extension, you would now have until July 15th to identify the replacement property that you want to purchase. And then if your 180-day exchange period were to end on April 20th, again, you'd now have until July 15th to acquire your replacement property. But in the event that you elect for the extension of that identification period to identify by July 15th, your 180 day period would still remain the same. So you're not receiving an extension on both 45 days and 180 days to close. It's gonna be one or the other. Now, we've asked for clarification from the IRS because this notice was a little bit vague. You know, we don't know if, if exchangers have to opt in, if this is, you know, optional or are they automatically bound by this new extension period? Because if they are automatically bound, traditionally when you look at the timeframe in which we can release funds back to a taxpayer, if they fail to identify, it's gonna be after the 45 day identification period. But if this you know, option to extend is mandatory and automatically invoked for all taxpayers, this would mean that if they fail to identify within you know, the first 45 day period, it's still a moot point because we can't close out their account until now the expiration of that July 15th identification period. So there are a few other points that we're seeking clarification on in terms of this notice that was issued. And hopefully we'll have a response from the IRS soon, but who knows, you know, they're working on their own timetable. So, you know, what's sort of the forecast? What impact could COVID-19 have on the future of exchanges? And there's certainly a possibility of some restrictions to many landlords, you know, given the measures that are being put into place on the local level. For example, in California, and even San Francisco, namely, they have a measure that they're attempting to pass. It's AB 828, which says that landlords have to do a reduction of rent by 25% for at least the next year. And this is whether or not the you know, tenant is being affected by COVID-19. They don't have to provide any sort of evidence that they're experiencing a financial hardship. So there's that. In addition to that, the California Judicial Council also came out with a measure that's halting any evictions to tenants 90 days after the shelter in place is lifted. So even once that shelter in place is lifted, they're saying, hey, you still can't evict for at least 90 days, which again is making it very challenging for a lot of landlords in the local area. So what that's gonna do is, you know, it's gonna affect the buyer pool and 
terms of the type of properties that they're going to seek to reinvest into, you know, the sellers are now going to have more challenges relating to selling their property and really the marketability of the property. Because you have to think, you know, if you have this ordinance in place that says you have to take a reduction of 25% in rents, you know, how, how is that going to be a desirable property for someone in a buying position? You know, so it's really going to alter how they're going to view real estate. The other thing that we're seeing is that there's still activity happening in the marketplace. There's still, you know, transactions that are opening and closing, but we certainly have, you know, seen a substantial reduction in the volume of exchange transactions. But what we're thinking and likely to happen is that since there's been a substantial slowdown in the number of you know, transactions that are being structured as an exchange and just overall sales because a lot of sellers are, you know, choosing to halt selling their property and marketing that property for sale because they don't know what's going to happen with the marketplace. We're expecting to see a substantial boom towards year end for all those who, you know, retracted their sale or have decided to hold off on selling. So it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how this will all play out, but we're you know, hopeful that things will turn around. Um, you know, the other thing that's important to note is that some of the banks, there's a lot of conversation about banks over the next six months or in the next six months, they're going to be putting in, you know, a number of restrictions that's going to make it quite a bit challenging in terms of obtaining financing on both residential and commercial loans. So a lot of people are saying, you know, now is actually the best time to try to get any sort of financing in place because over the next six months, they're going to be making some changes to the way that they are lending out money and making it a little bit more challenging because right now they're really hurting. You know, they're bleeding at this point they're, and they're just losing money. But once the curve is over and it will eventually dip, you know, there's no doubt that again, we'll see an increase in volume. So with that, I really want to kind of open it up for discussion and see, you know, what's everyone else seeing in your marketplace and what are your thoughts? So we did have a question that came through. Please clarify California eviction limits for all rental property or is it just residential? For all rental property. Great. And then do you think that this extension will make 1031 exchanges more popular than opportunity zones? I do. And the main reason for that, and this was well before the, you know, COVID-19, the effects of COVID-19 came into place because with the opportunity zones, they've not yet extended it. So the benefit of the opportunity zone still expires 2026. So come 2026, you're still going to have to recognize gain and pay taxes on the gain that was previously deferred from the prior asset. There's just going to be a small principal reduction on the tax relief there on the gain. Great. So let me just follow up on that. So Sinead, the, the extension does, you can 1031 exchange into an opportunity zone, right? That's something that I think is allowed if I recall. Is not it- quite. Not quite. So, to explain that, because I was just thinking what you said about the deadlines not being the same, like how that impacts. Uh, yeah, so with the opportunity zone, and the reason why you can't change into an opportunity zone is that it really conflicts with the requirements of an exchange because okay. 
IRS says that the taxpayer that's selling the relinquished property has to be the same taxpayer purchasing the replacement property. Whereas with the opportunity zone, in order to, what you're essentially buying is this fund and you have to create a new partnership or a new tax paying entity to acquire the, that new property. And that new tax paying entity is gonna be different from the taxpayer who originated the exchange. So the exchange company can't fund this new taxpayer's interest in this new property. So with the opportunity zones, it's, you know, we've seen it used in the sense where someone has a failed 1031 exchange and they're trying to find ways in which they can still salvage, you know, some of the, the profits or their gains and defer a portion of it. So we've seen it on a failed exchange or when someone had funds that were left over that weren't reinvested into their replacement property through the exchange, maybe they just did a partial exchange and they wanted to put the balance in the opportunity zone, those funds would be released to them at the expiration of the exchange period in which they can then reinvest into an opportunity zone. But again, it's gonna be done outside of the 1031 exchange. Great. And then just one other kind of clarifying spin on this. There are also, I know it's not very common, but there are 1033 exchanges when mm -hmm. property is taken by eminent domain is the same. Ex well, well, it's, again, it's not very common, but it could happen. Is, mm -hmm. the, is there been an extension on that as well? Uh, not for 1033 exchanges um, from what I've heard. So okay. for those of you who aren't as familiar with the 1033 exchange, like you said, this is when a property is lost through eminent domain. We saw a lot of activity in California just a couple of years ago with the fires. So when a property is lost by fire as well, or it's you know damaged to that extent, you can sell the property through what's called a 1033 exchange. And with the 1033 exchange, you're not bound to the same strict guidelines as you are with the 1031 exchange. And you're also not required to utilize the services of a qualified intermediary for a 1033 exchange. So with that, you have a two-year, I, I believe it's a two-year reinvestment period on a 1033 exchange. So I don't know that this um, notice 2020-23 would affect 1033 exchanges because the time frame is going to be substantially different. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions or comments, feel free to unmute yourself, put on your webcam or type it into the chat. Yeah, I have a question. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Is it possible to do a 1031 exchange um, into the same property? So, for example, uh, a, a buyer has a, a, a multifamily building, bought it mm -hmm. two years ago. Um, you know, it's increasing value. A buyer comes in and buys it, the seller gets his money, turns around mm -hmm. and, and becomes an LP into the new buyer's company. And in other words, he gets cash out of the building, but still remains as an investor on that building, but at, at a lesser amount. Does that make sense? I'm not quite sure that I'm following. So he's selling the property in his individual capacity to this buyer that's a new limited partnership. And then so, right. so the buyer is asking the seller, hey, look, you know, would you reinvest in, in, in the deal as an LP? Uh, and, and so some of those funds come back to that same property. Could that be a 1031 exchange? It can't because what he's essentially purchasing 
is an interest in an entity which owns real property. And when you're exchanging, you have a like-kind standard that says when you're selling real property, you have to purchase real property. So the interest in the entity which owns real property is not like-kind to real property that was sold. So he's going from real property to personal property. So he's buying shares. And not only is he buying shares, but you also can't exchange into property that you've owned. I believe it's within a two-year period of the disposition of it. Okay, gotcha. Great. Hey, if I can, I'm gonna ask a clarifying question to something you just said, if I could. So you said you can't buy into a share, right? And I think that's what you said. But at the same time, there are funds that take 1031 exchange monies that are investments in real estate that are you know, like the former ticks, they're held in tenants in common. So but that's a share. So just if you can clarify that maybe. Sure, so there's different types of TIC structures that qualify for an exchange. The REITs, which are the real estate investment trusts, these don't qualify for a 1031 exchange because again, what you're acquiring is interest in an entity that owns property. You're not acquiring interest in the real property itself. With the Delaware Statutory Trust or the DST, structure, this will qualify for an exchange because what you're actually acquiring is direct ownership into the real property. You might be, you know, a fractional owner and one of 100 other investors going into this portfolio, but you're still acquiring the real property. Got it. Okay. So that's different kinds of shares, I guess, is what we're talking about there. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, can I follow up real quick? So yeah. instead of, on my example, instead of becoming an LP, uh, you become a general partner. Does that change the deal? No, because he's still not buying any of the real estate or the real property. He's just buying an interest in the entity. Okay. Okay. And we had a question come through the chat. Do you anticipate additional extensions to the ID and close dates? And let's say I have ID my third, but all were multifamily, could I re-ID a different property type if I'm past my ID time? As long as they fall within that time frame. So if their 45th day was on or after April 1st, they would have the ability to revoke what they had previously identified and opt in for the extension to close through July, to identify through July 15th. So they can amend what they had previously identified as long as they fall within that time frame, that window. So that was the first question. Let me just go back. I think there were a couple of questions. So I wanna make sure that I get them all here. Let's see. Am I not, I'm not able to view the, set, the second part of the question. Would you mind repeating it again? Let's say I ID my third, but we, but all were multifamily. Could I re-ID a different property type if I'm past my ID time? Yes. Yeah, so you can absolutely identify the different prop, a different property type as long as you fall within an being an eligible taxpayer for that extension through July 15th. Perfect. Any other questions from any? There was a second part was, do we expect any additional extensions to the identification and closing dates? You know, we're not sure at this point. Um, you know, we, I think when they initially thought about the effects of COVID-19, 
we were all expecting, you know, to be back in business as usual by now. And it looks like it's being extended a little bit longer. So we're, at this point, we're uncertain. And I don't think that they have kind of thought this all the way through. The hope is that by July 15th, you know, everything will be back as normal, whatever normal looks like by then. But it's a little bit hard to say whether or not there's going to be a secondary extension. I think we'll have to kind of play it by ear and just see how things progress over the next, you know, few weeks. Makes sense. Got a quick question. Um, this is Bob Fredrickson. Uh, have I had a client bring up, um, what was it? It's like section 453A, but it's a monetized installment sale. Have you ever, do you have any background on that or done any of those? So we don't do monetized installment sales. And let's see, what can I say since this is being recorded? Uh, <laughs> well, we can talk about it later, but yeah, it did seem kind of. It's more or less a buyer beware. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It seemed like that. And the, the client I was talking to is one of those guys that pushes the envelope all the time. So what I can tell you, so what I can say, and this, we had an exchange conference last September or October with the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. And there were a few representatives from the state of California, the Franchise Tax Board, who actually did discuss the monetized installment sale. And what I can say is that state of California says, we are not recognizing a monetized installment sale for purposes of a 1031 exchange. All right, interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? I guess I have a quick question, just out of curiosity. Do QIs do anything with that money while it sits there to, to be funded? No, we're just placing the funds into a trust account for the taxpayer's behalf. We're not reinvesting the funds, you know, and what was happening is that during the last recession that we had and the crash of the housing market, our industry dropped by about 90%. And during that time, a number of those exchange companies that were going bankrupt we're taking exchangers funds and you know some were buying yachts and living a very lavish lifestyle but others were taking funds and reinvesting them into other you know funds and you know bonds and stocks or maybe not bonds but other stocks and then there was a substantial loss to the taxpayers funds so we don't do that we don't you know commingle funds exchange funds are placed in a trust account that can be utilized at any time for the acquisition of any of the property that was previously identified. And I think it kind of leads to a great point in that when you're looking for an exchange company, we're not a federally regulated industry and we've you know, requested that we be regulated, but we're not federally regulated. And there are very small provisions on the local levels that govern us. And so anyone can really pop up a sign and call themselves a qualified intermediary doesn't mean that they, you know, are familiar with the guidelines and the requirements, nor does it mean that your funds are safe. You know, with Old Republic Exchange, we offer the highest protections in our industry, whereas we offer a $50 million E&O policy and a $120 million fidelity bond. I've had, you know, clients where, you know, they're shopping around and they're looking for qualified intermediaries and 
you know, I get a call saying, hey, you know, Joe Blow says he'll do my exchange for 300 bucks. Can you match it? I said, what's the value of the property you're selling? He says, 10 million. I said, and what's the bond they're offering if something goes wrong? He says, two. I said, so you're willing to lose, you know, so much of your investment, most of your investment to Joe Blow because he said he'll handle your exchange for, you know, 300 bucks. Is that really going to be a sound investment for you? Or is that really worth the risk? Any other I, questions? I guess you guys operate in every state? We do. The only state we do not handle exchanges or originating exchanges is the state of Idaho. And the reason for that is the state of Idaho sort of had a knee-jerk reaction during the last crash that we had because of all the Ponzi schemes and everything that was happening with the exchange industry. And so they put into place the Idaho Escrow Act. Whereas in order to do business in the state of Idaho, they want to see the financials of all executives within the company and its subsidiaries and parent companies. And we just weren't doing enough business in the state of Idaho to warrant us to release all of our financials. And I can tell you, my husband was not going to agree to release our financials to the state of Idaho for business purposes. So we don't operate in Idaho, but anywhere else we can assist with the 1031 exchanges. Yes, you can have my contact information there. <laughs> Great. We're just about at the top of the half hour. So, Shanae, thank you so much for being on here. If there's no other questions, I'll give you a pregnant pause of five seconds to ask those questions. Okay, if there's no other questions, again, I want to thank everybody for joining today, especially Shanae, for um, giving us some really great insight into what's happening with 1031 exchanges. For those of you on the line, I put a one-pager um, in the chat so you could go grab that file um, with some of the important information that was shared on this call. We thank you so much for um, your participation, for popping on your webcams. It's always great to see other smiling faces um, when you're on one of these. So thank you for that. And we look forward to seeing you on our build out session on Monday, our um, May series of the virtual coffee break starting next Friday. Um, so look in our brand report for that information and for registration information. And you can always go to Commercial University on our calendar to find that as well. So thank you, everyone. I hope you have a really wonderful, safe, healthy, and relaxing weekend, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Sinead.